6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 5 through 8. We are in the third session of 1 Kings. Obviously, we're exploring the career of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 5, we're going to deal with Hiram's treaty with Solomon. Let's turn to 1 Kings 5, starting the first verse. And Hiram the king of Tyre sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. And that's what Solomon's going to trade on, and they become uh, good friends. Hiram is very, is very resourceful, very key king in uh, Tyre. Phoenicia was, of course, a very seafaring country, and uh, he was obviously the, the head of one of the key cities of Phoenicia from about 970 to about 937 B.C., and a very, very close ally of David, and so Solomon is able to lift off that. And uh, David, after he conquered the stronghold of uh, Tyre, uh, he made a permanent treaty of peace with Hiram, and, and they became uh, uh, close. Hiram assisted in public works and so forth, sending to Jerusalem laborers and so on. And Cedarwood, the Cedarwood is going to be very, very key as we go forward here. So he sends his envoys, his ambassadors, to pay respects. So Solomon said to Hiram, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build a house unto the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. In other words, you may recall that God told David that he wasn't going to be allowed to build the temple. Now David was pretty sharp. He couldn't build the temple, but it didn't deny him the opportunity to prepay a lot of the expenses. Much of the lavishness that uh, Solomon is able to put in the temple comes from David having made those arrangements before he died. David's a very much a player of this, even though Solomon, of course, his goal, of course, is to is to uh, build the temple. And uh, but now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side, so there is neither adversary nor evil uh, occurrent. So Solomon's got peace in the land. He's going to undertake the temple. That's what we're leading up to. So he says, And behold, I purpose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build a house unto my name. Now David had shared with Hiram that he wanted to build a temple but couldn't. So Solomon is simply recounting all of this. So verse 6, Now therefore command thou that they hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with thy servants, and unto thee will I give hire for thy servants according to all that thou shalt appoint. For thou knowest that there is not among us any that can skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonians. See, the western slopes of the Lebanese mountains um, were in those days extensively covered with uh, the, fa- the cedars, the fabled cedars of Lebanon. And not just that it's beautiful wood, it also turns out that it has extreme bitterness and therefore it's not attractive to insects and worms and such. So it has, it doesn't decay as rapidly as other wood. So it's a very, very highly desirable construction material. Now Solomon offers to include, you know, to add workers and so forth, uh, whatever Hiram would consider a, a fair wage and so on. So, uh, 
Obviously, he's favoring uh, Hiram with the, the acknowledgement of their expertise in this kind of area. We get to verse 7, And it came to pass when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, and that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, which hath given unto David a wise son over this great people. And Hiram said unto Solomon, saying, I have considered the things which thou sentest to me for, and I will do all thy desire concerning the timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. In other words, pine also. My servant shall bring them down from Lebanon unto the sea, and I will convey them by sea and floats unto the place that thou shalt appoint me, and will cause them to be discharged there, that thou shalt receive them, and thou shalt accomplish my desire in giving food for my household. So what he wants in return is food, and you'll see quite a bit of food. He's got quite a household, it turns out. Want In effect, he's going to give trade. He'll give them the cedar in exchange for agricultural products. So Hiram gave Solomon cedar trees for fir trees according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 measures of wheat for food for his household, to his household, and 20 measures of pure oil. Thus gave Solomon uh, to Hiram year by year. Now we're talking the uh, 20,000 measures of wheat are estimated to be about 130,000 bushels. And about 20,000 baths are 115,000 gallons of olive oil. So we're dealing with a large household, apparently. Hiram's got meat here, and barley and wine were also included. Now, this isn't just his family. It's his courtiers and the rest of it. And apparently, wheat and olive oil were scarce in, in, that, in their region up there. So, um, And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom. Remember, remember we talked about it last time, how the Lord says, ask anything you like, and Solomon, of all the things he asked for, he asked for wisdom, and that pleased God. So he not only gave him wisdom, but he also gave him peace and prosperity. So, so the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between him and Hiram, and they two made a league together. And King Solomon raised a levy out of all Israel, and the levy was 30,000 men. And this was a, it was a real strain. It was turned out to be very grievous to Israel. He sent them to Lebanon 10,000 a month by courses. A month they were in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was over the levy. So that was a burdensome way to do things. 30,000 guys, they would serve a month for the king, and then they had two months off-duty or for, for, to handle their own affairs. Adoniram was over the levy. He was in charge of that and, and became extremely disliked, by the way. That gets to be a, a heavy thing. And Solomon had threescore and ten thousand that bear burdens and fourscore thousand hewers in the mountains. And beside the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, three thousand and three hundred, which ruled over the people that wrought the, the work. So there's about 70,000 transporters and about 80,000 stonecutters, in effect. Um, working in the mountains to the north. Everything was cut away from the temple area and brought there so there'd be no sound of tools at the temple. We'll, we'll pick that up in a little bit here. So you got 3,300 foremen here, plus an additional 550. That equals about 3,850 3, um, supervisors of various kinds. And uh, the king commanded that they brought great stones, costly stones, huge stones, and lay the foundation of the house. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them, and the stone squarers. So they prepared timber and stones to build the house. The stone squarers, by the way, is uh, Ghibli in the Hebrew, which could mean the Giblites, or the term actually means boundary. Uh, that could be the men of Gebal, or modern Byblos, if you will, about 13 miles north of Beirut, about 60 miles north of Tyre. So some, some scholars believe that not, it's not a job classification, it's a geographic label, but that's a translational debate among some of the scholars. 
But so, so much for chapter 5. Chapter 6, we're now going to deal with the construction of the temple itself. It came to pass in the 480th year of the children of Israel uh, that were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. This verse turns out to be a very key verse in the Bible for chronology because it, it links Solomon's temple to the Exodus and raises other debates, actually. See, the dates of Solomon's reign seem to be quite definitely established in references in ancient writings. They were about 971 to about 931 B.C. And according to this verse, in the fourth year of his reign, he began to build the temple. Now, this begs a whole other question, and that's the date of the Exodus. And despite, you'll find many authors speak quite assertively about the date of the Exodus, but there's actually quite a bit of debate. There's two basic groups. Uh, Exodus apparently took place 480 years earlier. That would place it about 1446 B.C. There's two systems of dating here. Uh, one is about 1400 B.C. The other one is about 200 years later, about 1250 to 1225 B.C., about two centuries later. And the earlier date is in quite agreement with Genesis 15, Exodus 12, Judges 11, and so forth. And uh, in Judges 11, 26, Jephthah indicates that Israel had been in Canaan about 300 years. You, you, you start dating this, you run into some, some difficulties. But Now, Solomon ascended the uh, throne about uh, 963. The fourth year of his reign, he began to build the temple. So that would be about four, 959. Now, the city of Ramesses, children of Israel, uh, supposed to have been built for the Pharaoh, uh, would be then considered a later name for the older city of Zon or Avaris. And uh, the entrance of the patriarchs into Egypt would have been about 1870 B.C., a date which allows uh, for about 400 years in Egypt. And the pharaoh of Exodus is sometimes identified with Amenhotep II, who commenced his reign about 1447 B.C. However, when we were in uh, the Cairo Museum, uh, we discovered something very interesting. There's a victory steal of uh, Pharaoh Merentepta, and he uh, is the 13th son of Dramasis II. And in the stela there, it lists, interesting, one of the few places you'll find the list of uh, Israel as a tribe on any Egyptian documents. It's also interesting that his particular mummy is in good shape, and the canopic jars, which have his lungs, they've analyzed, they've discovered there's very rare, strange salt crystals in his lungs, which implies that he died by drowning in the seawater. And so that's another whole possibility. That would have favored the earlier, the, the, excuse me, the later date, the 12, 1200 B.C. dates. But it's a big debate. But in any case, it's interesting that the uh, Word of God here tells us that the building started in the month of Ziph. That's later called Iyar in the, in the later calendars. But in any case, the uh, rebuilding of the temple 430 years later under Zerubbabel also began on the same month. It's kind of interesting. On the one hand, there's a lot of problems in chronology, and yet on the other hand, the more you study the chronology, there's discoveries tucked around all the little pieces of it. So, well, let's you and I move on. Uh, verse 2, And the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was threescore cubits, the breadth thereof twenty cubits, and the height thereof thirty cubits. Before we go on, let's talk about a cubit. For you and I, it's practical when you read, a, when you read your Bible to assume that a cubit is about 18 inches. They derived this from the Babylonians, but a similar measure was used in Egypt. But the trouble with the cubit is that there were actually two. There were double standards in both Babylon and Egypt, um, and there's a lot of dispute as to which one fits where and so on. The original length of a cubit was the length of the forearm, from the tip of the finger to the elbow. So it uh, implied by the derivation of the Hebrew word ama and the Latin 
equivalent is cubit of, the cubit of a man, in fact. But it's too indefinite to be a scientific standard, so the Babylonians adopted a more accurate measurement based upon which then passed on to the nations of the West. But they also had a double standard, both a royal cubit and a, and a conventional cubit. And from the remains of the buildings in Assyria and Babylonia, we discover that a royal cubit is made out to be about 20.6 inches, it's a little bit longer. It's probably a cubit in a span, is what some people conclude. And a cubit of similar length was used in Egypt, uh, and certainly was known to the Hebrews. But the cubit mentioned in Ezekiel 40, verse 5, and perhaps that of Solomon's temple, was a cubit after the first measure. In Second Chronicles 3, you find that phrase, of the ancient cubit. And uh, so the ordinary cubit of commerce was a little shorter, somewhere between 16 and 18 inches. And uh, evidence in the Siloam uh, inscription nails it to about 17.6 inches, the shorter length. One is made of six spans, one of seven in effect. So when, when you run into these cubits, you and I, if we, if we visualize about a foot and a half or 18 inches, uh, you get a feeling for this. So this implies the temple was about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. But there's also, we're going to find, it's not here, you also add a porch of another 30 uh, feet. That will be added here. And so uh, the temple itself, by the way, Solomon's temple, elegant as it will turn out to be, is only about 2,700 square feet. It's not that big. And you got tens of thousands of laborers you know, doing all this. So it's, uh, it's not big, but it's incredibly beautiful and very elegant in its appearance. Verse 3, the porch before the temple of the house, 20 cubits was the length thereof. According to the breadth of the house, and 10 cubits was, was the breadth thereof before the house. So... Most, more significantly, let's take a look at the floor plan so you can follow the subsequent verses. The temple itself is patterned after the tabernacle, but larger. And uh, just the, the tabernacle had a, uh, a holy place. When you entered in the tabernacle, on the left you had the menorah, the lampstand, and on the right you had the table of showbread. But here we're going to have ten of each, five on each side, in Solomon's temple. It's also larger. As you approach the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, which is translated in your King James Bible as the oracle in some passages. Don't be thrown by that as you get there. There is the veil. Associated with the Holy of Holies, but just outside, is the golden altar, the altar of incense. It creates a lot of confusion because it's associated with the Holy of Holies. But it had to be tended by the priests day and night, and the priests could not enter the Holy of Holies. So it's just outside the veil, but associated with the Holy of Holies. That causes a lot of confusion. Inside the Holy of Holies... There are two things. I really should say three things, but two appliances. There's the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. All of us fall into the trap, and in Scripture also sometimes we'll use the Ark of the Covenant connotatively to include the Mercy Seat. But if you study Exodus 25 carefully or the rest of the Bible, you'll notice they're always mentioned separately. They're mentioned made of different materials, and they, uh, we believe, have a different prophetic destiny. But also in the Holy of Holies was the Shekinah glory. We'll talk about that when we get there. That's the, the naos, the temple proper. It's in a court, and in that court, when you first enter that courtyard, you come to the Holocaust altar, altar as it's sometimes called, the brazen altar. And uh, you also have what's translated the molten sea. We're going to talk about that as this passage is unfolded. The molten sea is a strange translation. Molten meaning it's bronze, and a sea, it's like a laver. It's a big brass washbowl, but a gigantic one, about seven and a half feet deep and about ten feet in diameter. 
In addition, their labor is of bronze in Solomon's temple where the priests could wash and so forth. So that's the quick picture of the thing. There, something else, there's a couple of things that are significantly added to the temple architecturally. The tabernacle did not have a porch. The temple did have a porch, and that's going to be very important. In front of the porch are two large pillars, Yachin and Boaz. They don't hold up anything. They're there decoratively, but they're gigantic, bronze pillars that, uh, that were cast. And so we'll, we'll encounter those. But something else in the, in the temple that is going to come up is the chambers of wood. Surrounding the temple its structure itself is a three-story um, collection of rooms that uh, were for the priests themselves to store their personal things. They are alluded to in some strange ways throughout the Scripture, and uh, we'll talk more about that, but be sensitive to those. That, that obviously has no counterpart in the tabernacle. And the personal storage for the priests, we'll talk about that. The Holy of Holies, the inner chamber, the holy place, and the porch are the three structural elements that are critical. In addition, of, and then there's the inner court, not to be distinguished from the outer court, which is further outside, and so on. Okay, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Let's go on with First Kings chapter six, verse four. And for the house he made windows of narrow lights, and against the wall of the house he built chambers round about, against the walls of the house round about, both of the temple and of the oracle, that is the holy of holies. He made chambers round about. The nethermost chamber was five cubits broad, the middle was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For without in the wall of the house he made narrow rests round about, and the beams should not be fastened, that the beams should not be fastened to the walls of the house. So this made, these are the chambers of wood. And they seem to increase in size going up, allowing for the stairways probably. It's a strange structure, but in any case, uh, and these are probably inside dimensions. That's why they're probably a little confusing when you try to draw it. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone, made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. In other words, these stones were cut precisely off-site and brought there. The door for the middle chamber was in the right side of the house, that they went up with winding stairs into the middle chamber and out of the middle into the third. Now he's speaking now of the chambers of wood. And they came in from the right side. So he built the house and finished it, and covered the house with beams and boards of cedar. So the structure is stone, but then inside it's covered with paneling, cedar paneling, and the cedar paneling is going to be covered with gold, even the floor, amazingly enough. Then he built the chambers against all the house, the five cubits high, and they rested uh, on the house with timber of cedar. And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which thou art in building, if thou wilt walk in my statutes and execute my judgments, and keep all my commandments to walk in them. Then will I perform my word with thee, which I spoke unto David thy father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. And so Solomon built the house and finished it, and he built the walls of the house within with boards of cedar, both the floor of the house and the walls of the ceiling. And he covered them on the inside with wood, and covered the floor of the house with planks of fir. So that it's cedar on the walls, it's pine on the floor, in effect. And he built 20 cubits on the sides of the house, both floor and walls, with boards of cedar, and even built them for it within, even for the oracle, even for the most holy place. The word oracle is to beer in the Hebrew. It's really an, it's a term for the holy of, what we would call the holy of holies, the innermost room of the temple, of course. 
Now, Solomon makes reference to the promise that was given to David. That promise was that his throne would be established forever. And God would do that even if Solomon doesn't obey him, which indeed he ultimately doesn't, but because of David, God's commitment to David, that's going to endure beyond the misdeeds of Solomon. Solomon's ultimate disobedience will cause the division of the kingdom. And that will be our subject in the, the second half of the first book of Kings. And the oracle he prepared in the house, that's again the Holy of Holies, prepared uh, in the house within to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And the oracle in the forepart was 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in breadth and 20 cubits in height. In other words, it's a cube. It's a 30-foot cube. In the tabernacle, it was a 15-foot cube. So everything here is twice as big and obviously far more elegant. And he overlaid it with pure gold. So he covered the altar, which was of cedar. And so Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold. And he made a partition by the chains of gold before the oracle, and he overlaid it with gold. And the whole house he overlaid with gold, until he had finished all the house. Also the whole altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. And within the oracle he made two cherubims of olive tree, in other words of olive wood, each ten cubits high. These are super angels that are ten cubits high, fifteen feet high. Five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. And from the uttermost part of the one wing unto the uttermost part of the other were ten cubits. So we're we're talking a huge, huge olive wood carving of two angels, presumably with their wings touching, if you will, above them, that he's going to cover them with gold also. The other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubims were of one measure and one size. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so it was of the other cherub. And he set the cherubims. That's a funny expression you'll find in King James. Cherubim is plural. You don't have to put an S on it. Cherub is singular, cherubim is plural. But in any case, uh, he set the cherubim uh, within the inner house, and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched one another in the midst of the house. And he overlaid the cherubims with gold. He carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers within and without. And the floor of the house he overlaid with gold within and without. That's interesting because gold is a very soft metal. But uh, that's anyway. And, and for the entering of the, or, uh, of the oracle, he made a doors of an olive tree. The lintel and side posts were a fifth part of the wall. Two doors were of olive tree, and he carved them, upon them carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and overlaid them with gold, spread gold upon the cherubim and upon the palm trees. He also made he, for the door of the temple posts of olive tree, a fourth part of a wall. And the two doors were a fir tree, and two leaves of one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. And he carved thereon cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and covered them with gold fitted with carved work and built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. I might mention that uh, the olive doors that were leading from the holy place may have been framed on five-sided jams, some, some scholars feel. Some commentators believe they were sliding doors. There's all kinds of rabbinical debate about that, uh, about the details. The other ones are four-sided jams and a bifold apparently. Now, the inner court was an open plaza surrounding the temple. We saw that sketched in the plan view. And there's an outer court that is not mentioned here, but is mentioned in Second Chronicle parallel passage. 
when we go to, I didn't try to parallel Chronicles each time. We're going to go through Chronicles following Kings, so we can pick that up there. But in any case, uh, outer court is a slighter, lower elevation than the inner courtyard. Uh, this inner courtyard is sometimes called the courtyard of the priests, and it's separated from the outer court by a, the little wall, this three, wall with three courses of dressed stone and so forth, and then one course of cedar beams. Now, the size of the inner court's not given, but uh, if the dimensions of the temple are proportional to those of the tabernacle courtyard, we could assume the inner courtyard is probably 150 feet wide and about 400 feet long, nominally like a football field. In the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month of Ziph, and the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof, and according to the fashion of it, so was he seven years in building it. More precisely, seven and a half years if you really count the months. But in any case, seven years building the temple. He's going to spend 13 years on his own house. So now we're in chapter 7. We're talking about Solomon's own house. But Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. And he built also the house of the forest of Lebanon. This is a strange phrase, the house of the forest of Lebanon. Sometimes some Bibles would have the palace of the forest of Lebanon. It's not in Lebanon. It's, it's a label that apparently gets put to it because of the extensive use of the fabled cedars of Lebanon in its construction. The length thereof was 100 cubits, and the breadth thereof 50 cubits, the height thereof 30 cubits, upon four rows of cedar pillars and with cedar beams upon the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above upon the beams that lay on 45 pillars, 15 in a row. You know, that's quite a house, by the way. A hundred cubits would be 150 feet long, right? So it's, well, half the, that's what, it's half the length of the football field, and its, uh, and it's uh, breadth is 50 cubits, so it's, uh, it's a sizable place. Height, 30 cubits, 45 feet high, and so on. And it was covered with cedar above, upon the beams, and lay upon 45 pillars, 15 in a row. And there were windows in three rows, light was against the light in three ranks, and all the doors and posts were square with the windows, and the light was against light in three ranks. And he made a porch of pillars, the length thereof was 50 cubits, and the breadth thereof 30 cubits, and the porch was before them, and the other pillars and the thick beam were before them. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Nussler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.